Welcome to another episode of Are You a Weezer Fan? As always, I'm John, here with Bill. So sick of reading Rivers' deleted tweets. The show that brings you the chronological story of Weezer history, music, and lore. Bill, what do we got today? John, it's it's the start. We're beginning. We are covering Weezer's blue album, start to finish. Recording process, song by song, aftermath. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited for this one. Um... It's obviously been one of my favorite albums for most of my life. Um, Bill, how did you discover Weezer? How did you get into this band? Uh, when I was like, what, I got to think of years here. When I was about 10, I believe, uh, Hashpipe was on MTV nonstop. So Green Album was the introduction, but then you find Blue okay. right away because Pinkerton hadn't had its resurgence yet. So I probably heard Blue when I was like 10 years old, and yeah, okay. it's it's probably one of the best albums. It's definitely one of the best albums by this band. Yeah, I would I would hard agree with that. Um, I got into them roughly about the same time. I was, you know, probably around middle school age. I'm sure I had heard a couple of their songs, um, but it was actually, uh, My Name is Jonas popped up on a Guitar Hero, and that's yes. what started my Weezer deep dive. <laughs> Really showing our ages with when when we heard these songs. I know, right? Yeah, please don't anybody go back and try to figure that out because that makes me sad. Um, I'll figure it out. <laughs> but yeah, ho- so we ended last time with Weezer being signed uh, by Geffen. Um, that was on June 25th, 1993. Um, an A&R rep for Geffen uh, named Todd Sullivan. Uh, signs these guys and they're actually on dgc which is uh you know just a subsidiary of geffen yeah a lot of the record companies especially around the 90s were doing just these little smaller record companies in their record company to take kind of more risks because you know weezer's not a guarantee yet they pretty much everybody's just buying up anything that isn't glam metal or hair metal right now which the grunge bands are starting to decline, but everybody's scooping up anything with the distorted guitar. Absolutely. I mean, it, these, uh, the record companies were essentially, I mean, they still are like massive conglomerates of hundreds of different companies that are all more kind of like specific genre ish thing. Um, so that way you can kind of like shut down that one small division of things, you know, kind of go out of style. Um, but yeah, you know, signed to. Signed to Geffen because everybody is buying whatever guitar rock they can get their hands on right now, throwing whatever albums at the wall, seeing what sticks. Yeah, well, and then the nice thing with Weezer is they had songs. Um, They started writing for Weezer with the 50-song project, like we talked about last episode, which... Two songs? Three songs. Three songs make it out. Um, So actually, uh, listed on... The 50 Song Project, Weezerpedia, uh, it shows the world has turned and left me here as track number one. Now, I'm not sure if these are listed in order of when they were recorded or when they were written. Um, I, I imagine they would be when, because they were writing and recording these on his little eight track. Yeah, so, you know, why wouldn't they be in like a chronological order? So according to this, 
The World Has Turned and Left Me Here was the first 50-song project song, and it makes it out. Um, we also get Undone at track 10, and the very last song, not track 50, because I never finished, <laughs> no. track 29 is My Name is Jonas. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure he wrote My Name is Jonas and went, oh, this. Yeah, and <laughs> like you know, we've been messing around with a lot of stuff, but I feel like there's a few in here that we definitely need to move forward with. Um, right, and then they took the 50-song project and started to make Weezer demos, and the third demo finally made its way into the hands of Todd Sullivan, and that's kind of what got the uh, official signing to Geffen out of the way. Yeah, so they make it on to Geffen via Todd Sullivan. Um at this point, they are, you know, recording more stuff on Rivers A track. I mean, stuff that doesn't really come out, but I'm sure they're writing and recording more. Um, they are playing shows in the L.A. area and getting ready to record a debut album. Yeah, so they um, they wanted to self-produce their debut album, and Geffen said, no. That's a- absolutely not. No. That's that's not how this is going to work. Like, you know, we're buying up all these guitar rock bands, but we're also going to have a little bit of say in this. You yeah. know, Strange glasses wearing, different leg sized man. We're not taking your word for this. Um, so they were able to, they kind of give Rivers some options. And he was able to send the demo to a couple people that he wanted. Yes. Um, and he got it out to... Uh, what it gets to Lenny Kay, who has previously produced Patti Smith and Soul Asylum, um, and then also Sean Slade and Paul Colderi. I'm probably butchering that. Uh, who have produced Radiohead and the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Um, they both turn it down, but it does make it to friend of the pod, front man of the cars, Rico Kasich. Can't make everybody friend of the pod, John. See, I disagree. I, I, I can just declare that. I that that's my power with this microphone is I get to declare friends of the pod. <sighs> I guess we'll deal with those consequences later. But so, uh, yeah, Rivers had apparently just been jamming to the cars a lot, which I that keeps happening with him. Like he was listening to Nirvana shit ton when he really started to do Fifty Song Project, which shaped how. Weezer ended up sounding Mm -hmm. and then he just happened to be listening to the cars a bunch when they were like hey pick a producer yeah and I kind of remember reading a story that um, Rivers was kind of you know he's pissed off at Geffen forcing them to bring in a producer because he wants to self-produce and they're just like no like you know who do you want we'll try to get somebody that works for you and he's listening to a bunch of the cars and he's kind of pissed off and he's like get me okay sick get like if you get me okay sick and Geffen was like yeah sure he's kind of already on our short list um We'll, we'll see if he's available. And I think he was finishing up an album with the Vandals before this. Oh, the only ones I remember off the top of my head is he produced the Suicide album, which is a much different sound than this. But so they ended up with Okasik and his studio is in New York. And as we remember from last episode, everybody in Weezer had made their way out to L.A. A lot of them from New York and from the East Coast. So they have to get ready to hop on a plane. Uh, the night before they're supposed to fly out, they, you know, John, they're a bunch of 20-year-olds who just got a record deal and are going to meet one of their heroes. They probably went to bed on time and woke up early to make their flight, right? 
Oh yeah, there was definitely not like a record studio executive that had to wake them up and get them there. Yeah, so they apparently stayed up all night until 45 minutes before they were supposed to leave for the airport when a record exec come pounding on their door to get them all shuffled onto an airplane and out to New York, which they did. So they landed in New York. They, I mean, there's not too much wackiness before we get into the studio. They get in there with Rick Ocasek. They work really well together just from the jump, it seems like. Yeah. Um, we watched some footage. There's like an old documentary that uh, does have some old like Carl Cook footage of the recording process. Um, and it seems like everyone was in there having fun, working well together. Um, that, that video is interesting because so they fly out to the... Um, Ocasek wants to do this at Electric Lady Studio, which was Jimi Hendrix's baby. And there's a mural on the wall. And for some reason, in this footage, it's blurred out. Yeah, it, it's funky. And I, I don't know why. You can look it up. It's just like a Princess Zelda-looking cartoon lady in a spaceship. Like, it's not explicit. It's, it, it's not it's, a copyrighted... I don't know why they blurred it out on their little... I don't know what Carl had against that mural, but he didn't, went yeah. out of his way to make sure you can't see it. Because, like, at first, it kind of maybe just looked like it was just old, shitty footage. Um, but then, like, it, the more you watch it, you're just like, no, like, it looks like there's a background blur effect. Well, like, it, why? It, it might be old shit, but it really looks like they blurred it out for no reason. Yeah. I, I don't know. But I, well, we, so we digress. We, we do. But because we do hit some drama once we get rolling making this album. Yeah. Uh, because... W- the four guys that fly to New York to start recording Weezer's Blue oh, yeah. Album Let's are do a quick, uh, Weezer at the time. We've got Rivers Cuomo, lead guitar and frontman. We've got Patrick Wilson on drums. We've got Matt Sharp on bass. And we've got our buddy Jason Cropper playing second guitar. Uh, he doesn't make it through the recording this album. No, he's not on the cover. He's not the uh, the fourth man standing there. No, the fourth man standing there is actually... Brian Bell, who has been in Weezer since the Blue Album. Um, but there's debate on whether or not Brian Bell plays any guitar on the Blue Album. Yeah. So Jason gets fired after he, from what I can tell, recorded the whole album. Yes. He, okay, so he has a girlfriend at the time. One of River's weird, strict rules is no girlfriends. I mean, I guess it's not that weird. No girlfriends in the studio. No girlfriends on tour. Um, th- uh, Jason got his girlfriend pregnant. I don't know how planned it was, but it seemed to cause a lot of stress. Yeah, and from something I read from, I believe it was Carl that wrote this, it just seemed like Jason wasn't taking it super well because, like, you know, stressful time, you're trying to make this album, your girlfriend who's back on the other side of the country, uh, I guess, is pregnant, it's it's an issue. And, and, well, she was on the other side of the country. Yeah, but then she showed up. Yeah, so she flies out to New York and apparently, again, this is from Rivers, so it's hard to tell, or... It might even be from Rivers, Rick, and Carl, but there's it just causes a lot of drama when she shows up, and it's distracting Rivers Cuomo from making the album he wants to. Yes. So Rivers decides he is going to fire Jason Cropper um, and bring on Brian Bell. But there's the Weezer story of what happened, and there's the Rick Ocasek story of what happened. So... Per Weezer, 
Jason Cropper was removed from the band, um, and Brian Bell was brought in, and Brian Bell re-recorded all of Jason's parts, and it is actually Brian Bell playing all the backup guitar on this album, per Weezer. I believe the liner notes agree. Um, guitar, Brian Bell. Yes. Rico Kasich remembered the story as Rivers comes in one night and says, I'm firing Jason and I'm re-recording all of his parts. And Rick is like, no, you can't do that. We're almost done. And then Rivers <laughs> is like, well, no, fuck you. I'm doing it. Um, yeah, I believe and the legend is one night of re-recording the entire album, uh, second guitar parts. Yeah, where Rivers just goes into the studio kind of pissed off and just knocks out the 10 tracks like super fucking quick. Um, so according to Rick Ocasek, Brian Bell does not actually play any guitar on this album and Rivers is playing both guitar lines on all tracks. I believe it. I am inclined to believe Rick Ocasek as well. Um, this is a new band trying to make a name for themselves. Why invite questions about like a band member firing during the recording. Just put him on the yeah. album cover, put him in the liner notes. He's your guitarist. Now. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit later too. Apparently the firing, maybe not necessarily rushed, but got sped up a bit because they were getting ready to shoot the album cover, which was about to feature the faces of all four band members. Yes. Um, so they did have to move quickly. They were almost done with the album. They were in the like, you know, designing and shooting album cover stage of this. Um, it's an almost finished product, and Rivers is firing the guitarist. I mean, I don't want to say, like, I'm on Rivers' side on this, but it makes sense. And Jason seemed really upset about it at the time, or at least just want to talk about it at all. But There was a non-disclosure agreement, from what I understand. <sighs> See, and that's what weirds me out. Why would you do that if you're just... I don't, I don't know why you'd have an NDA for if this was the actual situation, but there's nothing to dispute it otherwise, so I don't know. Plus, Jason, Jason's on good terms with him now. He's even showed up to play, um, I believe it was Surfwax at a live show um, not too long ago, about within the last 10 years. So Yeah, and he's since been quoted as saying, you know, Rivers made the right choice when he did, um, and it probably wouldn't have worked out if he had stuck around. So Right. But so they brought, uh, they got Brian. Uh, Brian was showing up to some of the Weezer shows in California, and that's kind of how they met. And when they needed a guitarist, they were like, oh, um, Brian, let's hit that guy up. They had him play and sing some Weezer songs uh, on a demo that he sent to them so that they could see if it would work out. Mm -hmm. um, more importantly, he needed to tell them what his favorite Star Wars action figure was. Yeah, because they, they didn't just need a guitarist. They needed a full-time member of this band that was going to make sense as a full-time member of this band. If they were going to sell it, you know, back to I think Weezer is lying about who played the guitar parts. <laughs> um, if they're just going to sell it as this is our guitarist, it has to feel like he's been there all along. And this band has a vibe and this album has a sound and he had to fit into that. Yeah, and his answer was Hammerhead, who has a wacky Star Wars name, but it's just that slug-looking dude from the cantina in uh, New Hope. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't, there's really nothing to nothing more to say about that. 
They made hammerhead toys. That's fun. Oh, okay. they made toys out of everything, Joe. That's how Luke has made all of his money. Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, right. yeah, I think it's time to get into the album. Wow, yeah. Um, and I'm I'm really excited for this one. Um Bill, it's the blue album. It's it's been influential to us for many a year at this point. Uh, it's it kind of a a game changer for our lives, the music industry, maybe the world. Yeah. Um, well, I guess let's start our official journey. Bill, you a Weezer fan? Uh, yeah, at this point. Yes, I am. Track one. My name is Jonas. Track ones on debut albums matter to me. It's the first introduction to a band, to a catalog of work. And it's it's a, it's an opportunity for a band to make a statement. Yeah. Holy fucking shit. Welcome to Weezer, yeah, Bill. Yeah, I was about to say, that is such a good introduction. Well, a way to introduce Weezer to the general public, the world. Um... Oh God! Because oh, it's uh, <laughs> it's really good. There's so much to talk about. I, do, I just love that song. My God. Um, so a, a couple things that I definitely wanted to hit on. Um, you hear it so much in this song that uh, Rivers and Matt Sharp had set some strict rules for the guitars on this album. Um, they wanted essentially the guitar and bass to be played in unison only downstrokes as if it were like one 10 stringed instrument right and this song you hear that like well what's also interesting is so uh patrick wilson pretty much wrote the music for what you hear during the 50 song project uh rivers wrote the lyrics and then once jason came into weezer he added the jangly guitar intro. Yeah, the intro and outro. Which um, kind of shows that they did have their rules, and then Jason came in and was like, okay, that's cool, but I'm going to do this. And it adds so much to the song. I mean, like it, the parts without that little jangly guitar are super heavy and super rocking, and I love every minute of it, but to have that juxtaposition with the intro and outro for the jangly little bits are just, wow. Um, right. Also, that harmonica on the end. Who's playing that harmonica because it's working for me, and I love it. Rivers is playing that harmonica. God, you bet your ass he is. He's so good. <laughs> I, I love him. Um, so, the, the only other thing to, that's, like, I think worth noting is my name is Weepeel? <laughs> like, how does he even pronounce that in the song? My name's Weepfield. Right, because like it kind of almost sounds like Wakefield if you're listening that, for that. That's what I always thought. I and then, totally. So, so what's stupid, it's the name of his sled as a kid? What kind of Orson Welles bullshit is Rivers talking about? I don't. Who names a sled besides 
Rosebud. I don't understand. I I don't get it either. Um, but I like I don't know. He he named his sled as a kid. It's a little bit weird, that, but yeah. In it, that yoga compound, you had to name your sled. <laughs> yeah, maybe he didn't have to. Maybe it was just a weird kid and he wanted to name his sled. I don't think that's weird. I think the name is weird. I don't think the naming of it is weird. Um, another thing that I find interesting about this song lyrically, mostly just from the genius annotations is there's a massive misconception, it seems, that this song is based off of The Giver. Um, yeah, I saw that. As, like, the protagonist of The Giver's name is Jonas, and he ends up escaping on a sled. Um, well, how would you even know the sled? Is right. The name I, I, of... who, who knows? But either way, the song came out before the book. Right. So that's, any, that's anybody that big thinks that is, like, it's just wrong. It's, it's not about The Giver. Um and then uh, again, musically, quiet guitar intros, heavy verses, guitar solo, simple lyrics. I think is something we're gonna see a lot, especially on this album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a song. It is. It's about his brother, I guess, and a car accident that he got into. Yeah, it, it's loosely based on um, River's brother, who changed his name to James Kit, but was born Leaves Cuomo. Um, got into a car accident. He was a passenger, and then it's it's just dealing with insurance for the most part. And his brother uh, James was like, "The fucking whole system's out to get us, man! Like society, dude." And that's kind of where he ran with the with the strike happening and the workers having issues and just nothing. Again, n- nothing going as planned. Yeah, man, what a great song though. Really good way to start the album. Yeah. Um, well. Track two, shall we? Let's do it. All right. Track two, no one else. All right, do you want to start music or lyrics? I uh, music, because that oh goddamn, it's Bops. really it's really good. I I think it really showcases again this second Weezer song that that the public are hearing. Uh, really showcases Patrick Wilson's drumming. Yes, this he's, one he is very impactful. He's on. not using a bunch of toms, and he is doing a lot of fills, but it's mostly snare and kick drum, which mm-hmm. is very interesting. It's it's very stripped down. Like, it's not overdoing anything, which is why this whole album works so well, I think. And you can see that in just how he plays at his kit. Um, he, he almost feels more like, you know, kind of a jazz drummer to me. In, like, he, it's not super flailing about. It's, it's very kind of small, restrained movements. Um, even when he's like hitting them hard and wailing a bit, he's he's a very calm, yeah, cool, no, and collected he, drummer. He's a very good. He's a very good drummer. It's not just yeah. I, it, like the drums really hit me on that listen through, and then also the way that again through this whole album they use guitar on the last course to either because most of their guitar solos are just the course or verse uh, vocals done through guitar. Yes, absolutely. They have just used the melody as a solo before. And then on almost every song for the last course in the background, it comes in as a lead of some kind, a background lead. Like it's 
a guitar line that kind of mimics the solo and it's just pushed further back and it just keeps the song interesting. Yeah. It's really damn good songwriting. So, and that's interesting too because this one does uh, feel a little bit more like you know some other kind of Beach Boy soundy stuff. You know, yeah. throwback to kind of the lighthearted rock and roll. Um, you know, how much of that is Okasic being in the room for this? You know, yeah. And I, and if we remember Okasic, frontman of the Cars. They know a thing or two about putting out a perfect debut album. If you go back and listen to the Cars' greatest hits, it's like eight of their ten best songs came off of the debut. <laughs> it's it's that's, incredible. That's a way to do it for sure. Um, I don't I don't know how much OKSIX. I mean, they say he helped a lot. Yeah, I, I I don't hear a lot of cars in it though, John. Okay, I mean I'll try to point it out as it happens a little bit more. Um, but I do remember listening to I believe it was Rivers on a Mark Marin podcast. Um, and he kind of said, you know, it, it wasn't so much what like Rick Ocasek added; it was some of the stuff that he took away. Um, and as as I remember Rivers telling it. Um, if they had an idea that Rico Kasich didn't like, a lot of times he was like, no, that sounds like fucking Boston. Like, we're not doing that. You, you don't want to sound like Boston. What? Everybody, oh, that's stupid. Boston is amazing. Um, there is a specific quote for no one else, but it does tie into the next song, The World Has Turned and Left Me Here, which I'll just drop there because these are kind of sister songs or sequel songs. Yeah, it is somewhat one narrative. Um, so, I mean, I guess the first question here, um, Bill, do you think this song is satirical or do you think this song is serious? Oh, yeah, we should cover that for a second because <laughs> these lyrics are not the thinkings of a good man. Right. And it's very obvious that this is not the thinkings of a good man. So, like, you know, is this, is it satire or is it serious? So, it. Both this song and The World Has Turned are based off of a relationship Rivers was in. Mm -hmm. It's I'll, I'll do the quote now because it, it's going to make more sense. Uh, and the thing about this quote that I'm building up too much, but the thing about this quote is that it came out with the press kit for Blue. So he's not like retroactively looking at it through the lens of 2020 and going like, Ugh, that was kind of fucked up. When Blue came out, he said... Uh, no one else is the jealous, obsessive asshole in me freaking out my girlfriend. And the world has turned is the same asshole wondering why she's gone. So he he knew when the song came out that this is a shitty way to treat a person. So I still don't know if it falls under satire, but we kind of get into Rivers does this a lot. He's like, this is me at my worst and I'm going to put it in a song. Yeah. And I mean, that's been I, I love my emo music and that's all over that so you know it's not a bad way to write a song it's not um, it, it's a bad way to make me want to root for rivers in anything he does but at least he's honest i guess yeah um and hey you know you you wrote a pretty good song about you being shitty as long as that helps you be less shitty in the future and i've got no problem with it that's true that's true and i do like that he realized that We'll get into the next song right now, but that he realized he deserves to, because <laughs> uh, the angle from the next song is still like, "What'd you leave, bro? Like, what did I do?" And he knows what he did. Yeah, where it's like, you know, 
the the character in the song is somewhat him but also he's writing it from being removed and being able to see that like even though you know the the protagonist of the song might be a version of rivers he knows in his own mind that he's not the hero of that story and it makes it interesting it it honestly makes me like the song more knowing that he knows that it's shitty and then knowing that wondering why somebody would leave you for treating him like that is also shitty (laughs) And it's also interesting to think as well of the order in which these songs were written. The World Has Turned was a 50-song project song. No one else was not. Yeah. So this is retroactively going back. You know, the the, the World Has Turned is, oh, why did she leave me? And then he wrote, oh, because I was this fucking asshole. That's why. And that makes me like them both more. Oh, it does. Um, It does. Wow. Fuck, let's get into... uh, the next track though track three the world has turned and left me here we're three for three bill this album slaps it's really good uh the the acoustic guitar is, I think, something we should keep track of down the line because mm-hmm. once when we get to Blue, Jason plays acoustic guitar. Like, that's his job pretty much at live shows. And, mm-hmm. like, when you watch their early footage before Blue comes out, like, he's on acoustic guitar, Rivers is on electric. Yep. And you hear it throughout this whole album where it's, if it's not a jangly intro that Jason probably wrote, it's strumming in the background to fill things out. Yeah. And in this one in particular, um, it, you know, becomes the main thing you hear at the very end, Mm -hmm. but you can hear it building all throughout that kind of outro. Um, it's delightful. It really is. And then again, they hit you with the, uh, the guitars are doing the harmonics of what would be the lead vocal riff. Yep. And I think we pretty much talked everything lyrically we need to about this one. It is interesting looking at the line about talking to your photograph and you just listened after knowing how much of an asshole he was in the last song. Yep. It's like, oh, I got to talk to your photograph and that didn't talk back. I tell you what. Yeah, it, it's 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 <laughs> funny that in this one he's he's still an asshole. He's just a sad asshole. Yeah, he's like um, yeah. Unlike when I talked to you, the photograph didn't have anything to say. So I miss that about you. Yeah, it's like it it it's super asshole view of his relationship. Which again, the fact that he recognized it when the album came out, and then like even before he he goes back. I mean, this is the first song that they wrote on the 50 song project. Um, even if at that point, these lyrics are exactly what he is thinking and he is the asshole. He goes back later, adds a prequel song that is like, <laughs> oh, yeah, this is why. This is why I'm sad, because I was an asshole in this way. And then he had the foresight to look at both of these songs and for the press kit for the album went. People might have some questions well, about hey, this. Hey, so. by, uh, by the way, um, this is going to sound really bad, but uh, yeah, no, I'm a, I am an asshole in these situations, and I acknowledge it. Wow. I think it's about to get to uh, a string of hits like no other, though. 
Hey, this whole album is a string of hits, but yeah, uh, let's get into uh, I mean, one of the one of the biggest Weezer songs of all time, followed up by another one of the Weezer biggest Weezer songs of all time, um, <laughs> then Surf Wax America, and then another one of the biggest Weezer songs of all time. <laughs> Wild. Um, we got a nice fun stretch here. Let's start uh, track four, Buddy Holly. Christ, it's so good. It's really it's good. so good. Um, why would anybody ever want to leave that off of this album? I think Rivers actually has some good points as to why he didn't want it on here. Okay. Um, he didn't want to be seen as a gimmick band or a joke band, and he knew that the song was a little funny. Tongue in cheek, kind like it, it. It has the aspects of a one-hit wonder gimmick song. Absolutely, it does. Um, Mentions famous people by name. The uh, honestly, the Weezer falsetto is something that is a bit of a gimmick, especially in these first like two or three albums. Yeah, and he uh, this is the first time you hear it from them, and knowing that this was going to be like the song the label was pushing, it all. All kind of makes sense why he didn't want it to be what they were known for. Yeah. Um, but if you slap that song into the middle of an actual cohesively good work, you have shielded yourself from that a little bit. You know, you can't be a one hit wonder if you put out three hits on one album, <laughs> right? Like that's true, that's true. But again, you don't know what it's you don't know what the album's gonna do yet. They were still writing it. He also had big plans for Weezer kind of changing their sound with every album. Yeah, he did. He um, wanted the second Weezer album to be a new wave synth synth based album. So he was against bringing the synth on in any form yes. on the Blue album. So he already didn't love that that was going to be on there. He didn't want that to be associated. He had all these big ideas mm -hmm. and he does that a lot. And you know, in this situation, thank God Rick Ocasek would just rallied for this song. He would yeah. leave notes all over the studio. We want Buddy Holly. You know, <laughs> Rick Ocasek, from what I've read and seen, is the reason uh, this song ultimately got put on the album because he pushed for it so hard. Yeah, and that was a good decision. Well, we're going to talk about the music video uh, after we cover the album, but that is going to be yes. as big a part. Um, and then lyrically, there's a little bit to talk about on this song. Um, who, uh, like, what's with these homies dissing my girl? Um, <laughs> I think that's the first time we get a lyric out of Rivers that if you put the lyric to his face, you kind of can't help but chuckle a little bit. Yeah, and uh, without knowledge of... Uh it was actually something we skipped in our point uh, five episode, but yes. when you just look at this nerdy looking white dude saying what's with these homies, this is my girl. You're like, Oh, funny because nerdy guy saying hip hop things. But before, uh, was it before fuzz even maybe during fuzz? I think it was around the same time as fuzz. Yeah. Rivers recorded a full hip hop project. He was always a big fan of Public Enemy and really wanted to try it out. It was called Vegetarists. Mm -hmm. 
because he is also a vegetarian growing up in his yoga cult, or he's usually a vegetarian from what I think I've heard. Yeah. So, I, you know, kind of ebbs and flows, but, yeah. you know, mostly, if not fully vegetarian. Um, so there's not a, I don't think you can hear any of the actual recordings of vegetarianists of Rivers rapping, but there's a couple demos around the time where he does do some some of his hip hop things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's actually like it, it feels kind of funny and goofy, but it's a musical style that he has messed around with before and knows some stuff about. Um, but who were the homies and who was the girl? So, <laughs> so well, what I've heard from that, too, is uh, I think it was Pat talking about it. Patrick Wilson was recanting the story because the way Rivers tells it um they would go practice at one of his friend's house, uh, a Korean woman, which is why there's the line about uh, slits, eye slits. Yeah, that seems like a Feels, racial thing. Yeah, I don't know yeah, if not that's ideal. the best thing. Well, it's not the worst thing Rivers is going to talk about ever. But no. uh, So they go to his Korean friend's house to use her piano so they could practice their acapella harmonies. Okay. And... Uh, Rivers says that he overheard the rest of the band making fun of his friend at some point. Pat says that never happened, and he doesn't know where Rivers is getting that from. Okay. So he thinks it was just to make the line in the song, and he liked how it sounded. All right. Um, well, either way, kind of a goofy song written for your friend that may or may not have been slighted by your band members. <laughs> Um, I guess it's mostly just to have a little narrative, I think. Yeah. Wow. What a great song. Uh, there was a lyrical change. It wasn't initially. I look just like Buddy Holly and you're Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, yeah. It wasn't. Uh, uh, it was initially you look just like Ginger Rogers. Oh, oh, I move just like Fred Astaire. I'm glad they changed it. Yeah. I it hate much all better. Of that. Yeah. Um, if this song was Ginger Rogers instead of Buddy Holly, I don't think it. Uh, <laughs> no. I don't think it lands. Um, when this was released, uh, I mean, we'll get into that in the singles part later on. But this uh, was one of the singles of the album. Yes. Uh, excellent. Okay. Yeah, I think I think that covers it for now. We'll be back in a minute to talk about. <laughs> well, we'll be back after we talk about the album to dive into some more release from. Yeah, Buddy music Holly. videos, singles, post-release kind of stuff. Uh, but for now, let's keep rolling with the Blue Album. You ready for this one, Bill? Yeah, I'm ready. Undone. Sweater shop. Goddamn. I have feelings about this song. Um, just hearing that outro, it's so good though. That build up ending is incredible. And the, again, the acoustic guitar just barely in there. Yeah, but he's pounding. Oh the shit God, he's absolutely just wailing on it. But it's mixed in just so fucking beautifully. Um, 
Wow. Uh, there's some housekeeping on this one. Carl Cook is on this song. He's doing the spoken word intro. Um, he also does uh, the piano on the way out. Ah, yes. Um, well, him and Matt Sharp are talking in the first spoken word. And then the second spoken word is Carl and Michael Allen. Yes. Um, you'll remember her from the Weezer fan club. Um, yeah. Um, these verses are stupid. They're dumb. I hate the lyrics in the verses. You're wrong. No. And <laughs> I hate you. It me, I write. I I be right. Me right. Is how Rivers would say that in this song <laughs> and it drives me insane. So he the other thing that drives me crazy about those verses is Rivers was upset that this song also got kind of put in the um, campy gimmick uh, category because he thought this was going to be his serious masterpiece where everybody looked at him like he was Kurt Cobain with these fucking lyrics, and they're so stupid. You can't do baby talk in your verses and then expect the world to be like a genius. My God. Fair. Um, I think it works for the song. I love the song. I think it is a sad song. Um, I think it is. And I think if the verses weren't so stupid, it'd get the point across. If he didn't say, oh no, it go, it gone, bye bye, that people might get the rest of the message across. Who I, I think, I sink and I die. Like, who I? What? What is he doing? What is he thinking that this is going to make him a, known as a serious songwriter? Look, man, I'm just, I'm I'm confused. I feel like I'm being personally called out. I thought we just listened <laughs> to five perfect songs and I was not expecting this well, that, to take this left turn right here. I didn't, I didn't know how you felt. So that's the problem is because the song is amazing. That outro, when you hit the final course before going into the outro and it hits those two extra hits... When it, dun, 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 that is genius. That is songwriting genius to make your last chorus pop and then end on a buildup is insane. It's fucking wonderful. These verses are just stupid and I hate it. I, I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong. Um, wow. All it's, right. It's really good besides that. Though. It is. It is. Um, so that's, that's the end of the first half of this album. God damn. So yeah, like you're about to get to the B side of the album. Yeah. Um holy shit. I mean, it, it so if this were released as an EP and these were the only 5 songs that we got, where would it sit for you in like best EPs ever? <laughs> um I think that it needs the second half to really feel as good as the Blue album is. Okay. I think it like, does round out. Yeah. The, the, it's a really good first half. And I think what makes this whole thing work is if you bought this at the time and you got halfway through and say it ain't so, or uh, sorry, not saying it ain't so, uh, sweater song just finished and you were like, oh man, how much do we got left? Okay. And then the second half came at you. He, that, that I think that's really where it solidifies that how good this is yeah all right well um let's let's jump into the back half bill 
Track six, Surfwax America. Welcome to back half. God fucking damn it, this album, Bill. Uh, that's that song does such a good job of a juxtaposition of that interlude breakdown that's just like bass, keyboard, and vocal, mm-hmm. and then you end on that. It's a punk part, just straight punk. And this song so far has been to me the one that sounds most like the Cars, the most like the Beach Boys. Um. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But it definitely a fucking punk rock take on that type of thing. Right. But then again, you drop out in the middle completely for a falsetto, almost acapella breakdown. It's crazy. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, delightful. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Wilson wrote this song. He said that he had it pretty much completely finished on his four track. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, it, Rivers and Patrick brought the uh, Rivers' love of the Beach Boys to a surf track. Like, it's literally a song about surfing. But so uh, interesting, because uh, there's two things lyrically on this song that I want to talk about. Yes, John. One is the obvious, um, just within the narrative of this song, is this guy dead? Because I think he's dead. You have a good argument to why he's dead, and it's those lyrics on the bridge. That being said, um, I might have just kind of talked myself out of it. Ooh. And it's partially because of River's backstory and the next song and what the next song is about. We do know that songs connect that way. So um, River's in his background growing up in Yogaville, no drugs, no alcohol. Right. Um, also alcohol was seemingly involved with his father leaving the family and the next song, say it ain't so, um, deals with the idea of him being scared that his stepdad was also going to leave because he saw beer in the fridge and he connected that to his dad who had alcohol issues. What does this have to do with my fun time surf party, John? Well, because if if this guy dies at this fun time surf party, the sea is foaming like a bottle of beer at the uh, beginning, yeah. but then the it's rolling, rolling like a thousand pound keg. Yeah. So is beer what is killing this good time surf party? You're ta- you're taking the surfing just as a whole metaphor here? It could be. Interesting. I don't know if I agree with you, but it's interesting. Okay. So I, I think either a surfer dies or alcoholism kills a good time. <laughs> um, you want to know my deep takeaway from this very listen? Yeah. I always thought that you take your car to work and I take my surfboard to work. I get to work via surfboard and you get to work via car, which makes me way cooler than you are. That's not what he, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying you go to work. I go surfing. Yeah. 
I thought he was taking a surfboard to get to work. Bill, it, do you listen to the music that you listen to? Like, holy shit, really? Yeah, really. Like, this is your first listen that you realize that this guy is not commuting yep. to the office via surfboard? Yeah, I'm sorry. Man. <laughs> it hit me on the second course, and I was like, oh, no. I'm an idiot. Well, I mean, thank you for bringing that to the table. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, you know, really looks deeper at the song on, like, your alcoholism take. Hey, I mean, that was the first time I had thought of that. So, you know, we're both making revelations on this listen. Well, um, speaking of alcoholism, should we hit the next song? Yeah, cheers. It's heavy, man. That's like, it's definitely the best lyrics on the album. By a lot. And it is, by a lot. Yeah, it is amazingly written. Like, this is poetically an incredible take on alcoholism fucking up a family. Yeah. Like, even if it's, because what's the story? He found, he found a... He found a can of beer can in of beer. the fridge and when then, he was like 16. Right. And it, that kind of like made a connection that his stepdad was going to leave because when his dad left, there was booze. Right. And then problem is his stepdad's not an alcoholic and it wasn't a problem. And he's not trying to go anywhere. Right. He just wants a beer every <laughs> once in a while. But like the fact that he did run with that to make these lyrics so impactful is very cool. Like it, it really shows the rivers is a good songwriter. Like it steps away from the simplicity that I was talking about earlier and really dives deep into some meaning and just like emotions. It's really fucking good. Yeah. And wow. I mean, to go back in time to remember how, you know, even if it was a visceral raw feeling at 16 and put words to it like this and then also put the fucking guitars to it right because it could have just been like a about like it could have been a ballad like the lyrics are so sad and depressing the like i think this is one of the first things that really hooked me on weezer like like i said i heard hash pipe but then going back in here Mm -hmm. this was always the song for me like currently um uh buddy holly is trending as the song of getting wheezed you get wheezed with that yeah, you got to play the lick, you know. Yeah, but back when uh, back when I found a Weezer, the big kick was when you could turn it, burn it. Those is were, that my cat dying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like that guitar hit is heavy as shit. Like it's a uh, Radiohead creep levels of yeah. the junk. It's it's gorgeous, man. Like there's really I don't know if there's much more else to go into on it. And it's so funny because, like, uh, on a lot of my listens of this album, this song is is good, but it's not the one that I'm focusing on. Um, so far on this listen, that is the one that has kicked me in the fucking teeth. <laughs> um, I do have a question. Yeah. Um, I now know you can't surf to work, or at least if you can, that's not what we're talking about. Um, what's Steven's? 
bottle of Stevens. Uh, that's got to be some sort of liquor. All um, right, because and again, another joke during the time was wrestle with Jimmy was a euphemism for jerking it. Uh, nope, but it that's not uh, wrestling with Jim Beam. Right. Uh, Stevens Jim Beam. is a just different uh, bourbon. Stevens bourbon since 1939. Does it still exist? Uh, looks like it. Should we, up. should we get some? <laughs> Sounds dark, but yeah. Um, let's see if we can find some Stevens. Let's, let's get a bottle of Stevens and Jim Beam Heineken. And some Stevens and some Heineken for the next episodes. Yeah. Okay. That seems fair. It's better than this fucking angry orchard you brought. I should have. I should have brought beer. <laughs> okay. Uh, we get to lighten the mood up though for the next two songs. Yeah. Let's uh, let's go to the garage, Bill. In the garage. Damn, it's so good. It's a solid. It is a solid song. Um, that one, though, I would also uh, contend to you. Um, change that guitar tone, and that's a lot closer to a Cars song than a punk song. Well, I was thinking that the uh, guitar tones were making me think of Ocasek more because that f- the first guitar you hear is that like super fuzzy in the distance one before everything kicks into the regular Weezer sound. Okay. And then also that second verse, the bass tone is so distorted and fuzzy. And they also do a really cool thing where they, uh, that pre-chorus kicks, but instead of the guitar hitting in right when the pre-chorus starts, like it does in the first verse, it holds off for like half a, yeah, just like a half a beat there almost. so good. Like those kind of feel like a producer move to me. Like, I can't imagine they were playing it that way before going to the studio. And this one also really, like, the Say It Ain't So is personal on a deeper level, but this one really shows the more Rivers just singing 100% about real-life things he's experienced. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a little bit of a sadness to it, I think. Um, you know, the I play my stupid songs, I write these stupid words and like, you know, just the in the garage where I belong, you know, feels like a little bit of like uh somebody who's been bullied and like put in the garage versus it, Yeah, it does. There is that sadness to it, but it is the the line where uh he loves everybody waiting there for him. Yep. Gives it that melancholy happiness too. And then, so we, this might be a bigger discussion than just this song, but we talk about Dungeons and Dragons. We talk about X-Men. This song seems fairly responsible for helping bring nerd culture to mainstream audiences. And that's something we we're going to have to like really dive into as we continue this story. Um, but yeah, the, the simple fact of the matter is uh, nerd culture in 1994 was not nearly as mainstream as nerd culture is now in 2023. Is Weezer just around at the right time to benefit from that? Or is Weezer an actual <laughs> driver of that? It's, it's, I think they might be. They, they might be. We, we're going to have to 
take it to a different level and look at it somewhere else but i know we're gonna have to just look at (laughs) nerd culture in general um and see where weezer might fit in but i mean to be honest i think that they do have somewhat of a part in bringing that forward yeah well talking kitty pride and nightcrawler specifically x-men the animated series had just come out before this album was coming out so they they had the song written already the only like the only other music places that come to mind that were singing about comic books or superheroes at all were some punk bands that didn't break mainstream and Wu-Tang Clan, which was the year before this. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a different kind of mainstream that Weezer was bringing this to. Because it's not like Wu-Tang didn't sell albums. <laughs> Wu-Tang's one of the biggest groups that came out and they were also singing about superheroes and comic books. But I don't think Wu-Tang fans, you know, maybe related to the nerdiness of Wu-Tang speaking about comic books in the way that, like, nerdy people who liked comic books maybe saw themselves a little bit in Rivers and Weezer and, you know, like, didn't you buy those albums for different reasons? Yeah, well, actually, no. Like, honestly, that's one of the things that brought me closer to, like, Wu-Tang and things that got me more into hip-hop in general were okay. comic book references in them, and I could relate to that. But again, you're taking a white kid from the suburbs and putting superheroes in front of him. Of course, I'm going to be drawn to it. So yeah. maybe that's what we're looking at. I don't know. Okay. What we're going to have to deep dive. Yeah, that's a, that's a much larger discussion. Um, Weezer and nerd culture. Wow. Um, we're, we're almost done here, Bill. We got two tracks left. All right. Well, uh, track nine holiday. Yeah, let's do it. This is Weezer hitting the formula. Yeah. They fi- they figured it out. Lyrically, it's the least depth on the album. Yeah, there's not much going on here. It's I, a- I don't think so, unless there's another tragic backstory I'm missing. But I think I think we've done pretty good research and nothing's coming up. No, uh, Holiday was written in a sudden burst of confidence and optimism right after we got a record deal. So, yeah, that's just... Yo, y'all want to go spend some money, have some fun? Um, yes. Uh, yeah, but it hits the, you got a little acapella break. You have your pretty much classic Weezer pause with the guitar lick at the end. Yep. Um, the, those hit so well. Like how they do those every time they do them. And it's amazing that it, like this one on Holiday is not at all dissimilar from the lick that kicks you in the teeth on Buddy Holly. It's essentially the same fucking lick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, so I love from after the bridge, it, it builds up a bit and then it goes back to the first verse. Um, and there's just a little bit of vocal work on the way he says the line, you and I to a strange and distant land where he, he brings that out yeah. a little bit further. And like, it's such a nice fucking touch. Yeah. Um, that's, that's again, what they're good at is just yeah. adding those little things. So it's not boring or repetitive. It keeps you interested because something different is happening or it keeps you interested because it's bringing back things from the, 
like when they redo uh, solos as vocal lines and vice versa. Yeah. Oh, man. They, they're really good at keeping your attention through a song. And if, if this is accidental, like they can't be accidental, right? Like, I mean, anybody can do it once. They've done it nine times in a row just today, Bill. Anybody can do it ten times in a row once. <laughs> well, let's watch them do it ten times in a row, only in dreams. album was bookended by perfection <laughs> yeah and those bookends sandwiched a hell of a lot more perfection in the fucking middle oh my god oh, it's a really good song <clears throat> it is eight minutes long which i think they use very well it doesn't feel long enough i want more of that guitar solo um i want more of the bass line Wow. Oh, it's really funny that the the very last note, the bass line finally resolves to, I believe it's an E, but it just keeps doing that over and over and over. But it just feels good. The way they build up a couple times really works. The There's not that much lyrics. There's two verses, and they're both very short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's just a song about the guy that doesn't get the girl, and he's... You know, he, he's dreaming about getting the girl, and he doesn't get the girl. Yeah, I still I still think there's more to it than there is holiday, but I mean, not much more. It's, oh, yeah. it's not the deepest. It's simple. It's it's the music. It, this one's here for the music. It's the only time that I can recall of Patrick Wilson using his toms and fills, and he goes ham on that last bit. He does go absolutely ham on that last bit. Uh, but there was uh, two moments in each of the two choruses in which he hits like a, an unexpected crash on the first one. Yeah. And I think it's like an unexpected snare on the second one. It's, just, um, it's, li- it's nice. It's, it's one thing. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, just a three and a half ish minute guitar solo outro kind of deal. Um, and holy fucking shit. Yeah, it's uh it's one of their oldest songs too. They've been playing it since pretty much their first show, I believe, and usually would close with it during this time period and that's mm-hmm. a pretty good call. Yeah, um that's that's the way to end a show in my mind. I mean, it's, it's definitely it's got some emotional weight to it, but it's also just got a hell of a lot of musical rockiness to it. And and it's got your Weezer Solo, acoustic guitar, build up, quiet part, loud part. Yeah. It's everything. It's it's a Weezer song. Um, the Bill and that was a Weezer album. That's the first Weezer album. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we, we do have a few things to get into uh, post this album. Um, you know, kind of setting up our future uh, episodes of this show, um, as well as wrapping this one up. Yeah, so that's the song by song. But to release an album, John, we need an album cover. We need one of the most iconic album covers of all time. 
which is also just kind of a ripoff of some album covers that had already existed and is not <laughs> not a particularly like you know, inventive anything. Well, so um, there's so, some of the sources say it was Carl Cook's design of the album, but it really sounds like Rivers took point on it. It's um, he claims that the color blue is from when he was seven years old and painted his bedroom that color. Okay. I don't know if that's true. That seems kind of far-fetched, but I'll roll with it. Yeah. Um, Rivers decided not to wear his glasses in the shoot because he didn't want to have them on and look nerdy, I guess. Um, He was also self-conscious about the size of his head when the photo was taken. (laughs) You told me that. I I don't think I knew this bit. Yeah, so I read, I think it was even just earlier today that I read... um, that they had to like Photoshop a smaller picture of his face onto the body. Um, so he didn't feel weird about it, but an interesting note. It's wacky, man. Yeah. Uh, and then, like we said earlier, Jason Cropper kind of got booted quicker so that they could have the lineup of the band that that this is how they were going to present themselves very plainly standing in front of the blue background which Rivers took inspiration from a Beach Boys? Yeah, it was a Beach Boys cassette. Uh, it was Do It Again, I think it was. Yes. Yeah, Do It Again by the Beach Boys. Which um, just shows the guys all kind of in the same striped shirts just standing in front of a similar blue, blue background. background. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But instead of like shoulder to shoulder, they're kind of standing like three of them in front, two of them behind. Well, there's a lot more Beach Boys than yeah. there are Weezer Boys. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, the Blue Album was never meant to be called the Blue Album, and it was also not meant to be, like, a self-titled. It was supposed to be untitled. Right, because technically it is Weezer. It is their, their that's, first that's of, the like, album. five self-titles, right. It so officially Weezer 1994. Yep, yeah, Weezer 1994 to be followed up by, like, you know, Weezer 2001, Weezer 2005, Weezer, you know, whatever. Yeah, they have five albums named Weezer, I believe. Yes. Um, but it, they didn't even want it to be called Weezer. It was just supposed to be like untitled. This is this is another time where I look at Rivers and I'm like, what, what are you doing? Of course, that's not. When has that ever happened? Right. Like it's self-titled. Yeah. It's, Le- it's, it's not untitled. It's self-titled. Led Zeppelin 4 is untitled. It's Led Zeppelin 4. Yeah. You don't just say, you know, Led Zeppelin's. For that, you, you don't, you, there's, people are going to find a way to refer to these things if you try to make it untitled. Yeah, completely agree. Um, but yeah, man, Blue Album. Um, singles off of this album were Undone the Sweater Song, Buddy Holly, and Say It Ain't So. Right. Well, we needed to tackle the album cover before we got to the music video for Undone. Yes, because it is essentially um, the album cover. And... Rivers and the band, but, you know, Rivers, uh, really did not want a music video for the sweater song that had anything to do with a fucking sweater. And right. I don't think that that's that hard of an ask. No, um, it's not. But that brings us one of our many side characters, as we've talked about before. But this brings to the world of Weezer, Spike Jones. Yeah. Um, Spike Jones has won Oscars, right? Yeah, of course. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Um Oscar-winning director Spike Jones makes his first Weezer music video for Undone the Sweater Song, and his pitch is like three lines to these guys. He just wants them uh, playing the song, blue background, wild dogs. 
<laughs> so he he that's his pitch for the video, quote unquote, but it wasn't a pitch. He was just talking and he completely forgot that he said any of that until they called him back and said, we want you to do the idea you pitched us. And he said, what idea I pitched you? And they had to remind him about the background and the dogs. And he was like, oh, okay. I thought we were just spitballing here. But like, yeah, I mean, we could get that done in a day. Yeah, sure, whatever. Um, uh, this also, first Weezer video, but it does start the trend of Weezer playing in slow-mo. And isn't that also just like a pretty common thing in it is, music but, videos? Well, maybe we can keep tallies. We can see if they do it more than anybody okay. else. But. So, and explain to me how that works again. So the band plays slower, <laughs> yeah. and then the footage is no, no, sped no, no, no. up. The band plays faster, so and then you your footage is slowed yes, down. Your playback is about one and a quarter faster than it normally is, or one and a half, depending on how slow you want to go. So Interesting. you're okay. hitting your things faster, you're singing faster, and then you take that sped up time and slow it down. So you're still hitting everything on time to the right. actual playback, but it looks like you're doing it in slow motion. Okay. Huh. Interesting. Um, and well, this video also opens with some fun, <laughs> like other fun camera trickery that I love. Um, so you're coming in this hallway where it looks as if the camera is upside down. You've got like... Yeah, and there's some people hanging out. Yeah, signage upside down. You've got, you know, um, people's like, you know, feet up on what looks like the ceiling because it looks like the camera is upside down. But then as you get through the door from the hallway into the space, the camera flips and... Everything's upside down. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then it continues to twist until we're finally right side up. So the way that they got that actually, because it is one continuous shot, this entire video, um, they actually had like people hanging from the ceiling with like foot hooks. Yeah. Spike Jones in the interview with Spike Jones, he acts like it's the most normal thing. He's just like, oh yeah, we just got some things and hung them upside down. Yeah. We just got some foot hooks. Um, and then, you know, take the signs off the wall and remount them upside down, uh, to, to make, this really fucking cool looking shot to start this video. That's why he's Spike Jones. Yeah. Um, because while he is on, he's Spike Jones because he has really good ideas such as, <laughs> yeah. While he's working on the undone video, he actually pitches another idea to Weezer for Buddy Holly. Um, he wants to make the iconic Buddy Holly music video. That is the band playing inside the, uh, bar restaurant of Happy Days, um, the old TV show, spliced in with old Happy Days footage to you know make it look like they're actually playing to these people on the show. Um, it's one of the biggest music videos I think ever produced. I believe so. It, it's what shot Weezer into the famous level that they're at. Yes. And when it was initially pitched to the guys... Um, the band really didn't think it would work. There's like a, that that like it sounds like a kind of fun idea, but I don't think you could pull that off and make it look good. Um, Watching it on MTV back in the day, it seemed a lot crazier than it is. Rewatching it before the show, the techniques don't seem that crazy. And when they kind of green screen something in that shouldn't be there, like Fonzie, it looks pretty bad. Yeah, but they pretty much just recreated Arnold's uh, diner. Arnold's driving. Ar they recreated Arnold's for the most part. And then whenever you see an actor from happy days, it's just old footage that you can splice in because there's nobody 
Nobody from Weezer in the shot. Yes. Um, but you get some really, really great moments from that video. Um, and it, it's so big for them. It's actually included on the install of the Windows 95 disc. That's insane. So a year after it came out, they decided every computer is going to have this music video in it, on it. And it really had nothing to do with Weezer. It was just because it was one of the biggest videos at the time. And Windows, when they were like releasing Windows 95, they wanted to show off the capabilities of Windows Media Player. Um, and this was, I mean, obviously 95, this is at a time in which like downloading a music video, getting that sort of content onto a home computer would have been a much more difficult proposition than just going to fucking YouTube. Yeah, in 95, maybe even impossible. Right, so if if Windows wants to show you that, like, hey, we've got a media player that can play fucking videos and sounds at the same time, they have to kind of give you that file, otherwise they're not really going to get anybody to use it. It's wild. Maybe we are uh, answering the nerd question already. Maybe they are just right place, right time. Because that is insane. Like Insane. That is luck on another level that boosts them even further. Because that video was huge already, and then they put it with every computer sold. Right, so they were absolutely people that have never heard of Weezer, never you know seen anything about them uh just all of a sudden load up the video and maybe bought a fucking album who knows like <laughs> wild uh wow uh that video won four mtv video awards um it, it was a big deal um and then uh spike jones doesn't direct the next video and you can tell it's, it's really it's just a 90s music video you could literally put any 90s rock band in this video and it Nothing changes. Yeah, it's just essentially the band playing the song in like a den with a door open to the outside so the lighting can get a little bit funky at times. Uh, there's, you know, a bunch of rugs everywhere. And like um, they, they've done, we'll talk about them down the line, but they've done other videos where it's just them playing in a room and it's a lot more interesting. Well, we just talked about one sweater song. It's yeah. just them playing in a room and it's a hell of a lot more interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Say It Ain't So. Great song. Not the, not the best video. So... Yeah, uh, Weezer, the Blue Album officially drops, Bill, on May 10th, 1994. Um, it, the singles drop afterwards, so as they do. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Doesn't, it doesn't blow up the week it comes out, but through the strength of Buddy Holly, it ends up doing double platinum? Yeah, double plat within the first year. Within the first um, year. Because they, well, within like the first year and three months, I guess. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, by the time they play Letterman for it, which is in August of 95, it has sold two million copies. Um, to date, it has sold over three and a half million copies. And it's, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it got reviewed amazingly right when it came out, though. Pitchfork gave it a 10 out of 10. That's Pitchfork. That's crazy. Yeah, Pitchfork is doesn't hand out tens. I think they gave Queens of the Stone Age like clockwork, like a 6.6 that <laughs> 6, I haven't forgiven them. As you can tell, I think, I think the lowest uh, is NME gave it a seven out of 10, but it's four or five stars from everyone else. A plus 10 out of 10. Like the critics love it instantly. And it just takes that getting it out to the people to get those sales to get up to where it does yeah um and well who's gonna get it out to the people if not our good friends michael and carly oh um, yes that's very true 
so they start they, they really get enlisted at first from what I read um, to be responding to fan mailers uh, so if somebody writes to the band asking for lyrics or other information or things they would be um, expected to respond and get back to these people and that then blows up into them starting the Weezer fan club and becoming members uh, 0001 and 0002 <laughs> of the Weezer fan club. As you would. It, well, yeah, it's crazy because before the album even comes out, they were sending lyrics out to people. Like people mm-hmm. were seeing Weezer live or hearing a demo and going like, I need all the words and they were mailing them out. And that's how we started Weezer fan club. And they started distributing the Weezine. The Weezine. Yes. We're, uh, how many i think they did a few on the first run um and we're going to be talking about them a lot more during episode three um when we are on tour on the road with weezer really hitting the uh promotional cycle for the blue album um but i mean they're they're a massive part of the promotion um yeah like they they built the groundwork hype for this so that when Buddy Holly's on MTV, the cool kids can be like, oh, yeah, I know about Weezer. I, yeah. have, I have the lyrics already. Right. Like, they mailed me a, like, handwritten fan club joining forum. And then... It, it gave them this underground status that they probably shouldn't have had because they formed so quickly and got signed, signed so by Geffen, quickly. Signed by produced by OKSIC, but like, they still have underground chops. Yeah. They have the underground cred because of this super strong... I mean, they have, like, little zines made for them, like, punk as fuck. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to get into that a lot more seriously in future episodes. Um, also, you know, they, they tour this album. Um, holy shit, Bill, I'm looking at your list. <laughs> You're telling me they play 235 shows for the blue promotion they toured their asses off for this album which is why we're gonna have to do it in its own episode but uh it was a smaller tour at first and then when the second year came around they it was a huge headlining deal Okay. Uh, wow. That's wild. And then uh, a couple TV performances, you know, they did Conan, they did Letterman, stuff like that. We'll hit on that in the touring episodes as well. Um, yeah. I mean, I think three late night performances for one album is kind of impressive. Pretty solid. And, you know, it looks like one of them never actually made it to air, but it was a pretty fucking solid one um, <laughs> if you can find it on YouTube. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, we're at about the summer of 1995. Um Hey, we're going to get into the whole Harvard story, but yeah, just before River goes to school in the fall of 95, they hit the studio for a couple of days and start getting to Pinkerton. Yeah. So we're going to go in depth on the touring TV performances, what Michael and Carly were up to um, in a few episodes here. But this, as of right now, is our cover uh, covering the Blue Album itself. Yeah, um, and in the next episode, we're just going to be hitting on music and pop culture from this album cycle. So 94, 95, um, you know, from recording to release all the way up until Pinkerton, you know, what, what was some of the other music that came out? Um, uh, what was going on in the world outside of Weezer and music and blah 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 Um so yeah, we got a lot, of, lot to look forward to, a lot of fun. But uh, Bill, before we get out of here for the day, we do need to check in on a couple things. Yes, John, we do. First and foremost, um, we wanted to 
I check back in on like our, our biggest band in the world rankings <laughs> and, and where, where does Weezer sit in the hierarchy of rock bands? And let's say it is summer of 95. They're just about to go back to the studio for Pinkerton. So they've, they've toured. This album has been received where they sit. Yeah. Well, again, so they just kind of popped into existence at this height of fame, which they don't have the years that Green Day did, who I'm going to say is the biggest rock band at this time. Uh, Green Day's Dookie was number two on the billboard and has sold 8 million copies since. Uh, Blue only got to 16. Like we said, did 2 million and has only done 3 million since. Which, I mean, great numbers. Like, this is big, but in the 90s, everybody was selling millions and millions of records. Okay, so Nirvana's done, but Nirvana Unplugged goes number one, selling 5 million copies. So Green Day, or Green Day. So Weezer is still... They're, the way they came out was very big. Like, mm-hmm. this is a really good debut and possibly one of the best debut albums of all time. But numbers-wise, they're not, they're not going to be selling out arenas right now. Completely agree. I think at this point in time, um, you know, where they sit could probably be described as, like, quote-unquote, the next best thing, where it's just like, you know, they've put out a debut... Now let's watch these guys evolve into a great rock band. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Like if Green Day is selling out a stadium or an arena, Weezer's selling out the thing that's smaller than the arena in town. Right. Like I'm not sure they could get to, you know, your 20,000 seat venues at this point in time, but they could get your 10,000 seat venues. Likely so. Um, Wow. Okay. That was time, Bill. Um, so the, our last thing, we have to rank this album. Um, on a 1 to 10 ranking scale, we decided on. And again, this is all subjective, but... No, fuck you. This is a fact. If you don't like it, you're wrong. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> We're better at listening to music than you. Therefore, our <laughs> ranking is God. Um God damn right. But I mean we we should define the ranking system. So one through ten scale. Yes. Ten. That is a perfect album. Every song you want to listen to. Um, if you hear a single song, you want to listen to more of the album. Like it it, it wants to be listened to. Right. Um nine, near perfect album. Might be some issues with it, but like holy shit. It's a, it's a near perfect experience. Eight would kind of be like the level of like, I recommend this album to my friends. Like, even if they might not have the same taste, it's like this, this is so good. I need to share it with people. Yes. Seven would be like this album falls into my regular rotation. This is something I want to listen to at least once every couple months. You know, it's an album that comes to my mind and an album that I listen to. Six, I occasionally listen to this album where like maybe every once in a while in the right mood, I'm just like, oh yeah, shit, that was a fun album. Let's throw this on. And you're still listening to the album. Yeah, but not regular rotation. Five, five is a very important benchmark. Yes. Because five is I would listen to this album again. Yeah, I, I think the 
we'll we'll do the second half real quick. But the biggest takeaway from how I how we're gonna rate things is it's not a failing grade after a six, a five. Most albums in the world are probably five or maybe below. I think most albums in the world, depending on anybody's rating scale, are probably between like a three and a seven. Right. Once you get to a nine and a ten, these are per- perfect albums. Yes. Seven and a five. That's that's an album. Yeah. So I mean, basically, we don't want we don't want to think of a five as an F because that's not what it is. A five is I would listen to this album again. But then we do start going downhill. And then we go down. Uh, four is kind of like you know it has its moments, but now like this has a couple good songs, maybe some singles that you would listen to. But if you think about the album as a cohesive work, it's not really coming together for you. Uh, three is like it's got a couple good songs, but the rest of it is not really coming together at all. Two, uh, I don't think I get this album. <laughs> like it's either entirely not for me, I might be missing something, or I just think it's bad. I won't take yeah, and I, I, I won't. I won't be nice about it. I'm gonna say it's bad if it's a two. Yeah, it's a bad um, album. Then one is listening to this album is a chore, Oof, which. We don't know what's going to happen. We with don't. Weezer. We might have a one. I, I doubt it at this <laughs> point. Um, but it, it is absolutely possible that we get to ones and tens throughout yeah. Weezer's career. Um, so, Bill, where are you at? One through ten. Blue album. Nine. It should be ten, but I really felt my my feelings on Sweater Song today. Okay. It's a nine. It's not perfect. I'm going ten, and I was gonna go nine. Walking you were in today. the hesitant one. I flipped on no one else. Yeah, um, yeah. The the no one else and the world has turned connection. It could it, going into today. No one else was gonna be the song that I flipped on to make it a nine. But it's it's a ten. I, I think I think the blue album is a perfect album. I'm going to regret saying that for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think we're about the same. We're in the same ballpark then. This is, well, we're, this is the first Weezer album. Yeah. This is it. This is what they came, this is what came out first. This is how we feel right now. And this is how we feel about Weezer right now. Yeah. Um, maybe at the end of this entire journey, we'll feel differently about even the old albums. But um, yeah, man, I mean, sitting down and listening to this with you today, through the nice headphones, um, chatting about it as we're going through. It, it, this album, this album's a tan man. I really do feel that. It's incredible. And I'm really excited to listen to the rest of Weezer with the knowledge and history that we're going to keep developing. Yeah, it's going to be a very, very interesting journey. Um, but Jesus, before this drags on too long, Bill, we just got one thing left to do. Yeah, no. You a Weezer fan? <laughs> Fuck yeah, you are. Join us next week as we cover music, history, and pop culture from 1994 and 1995.